Good morning, and just thank you again for asking me along to share in your harvest celebrations uh, this weekend. I feel very privileged and glad to be here. Uh, thank you for asking me after everyone's had an extra hour of sleep in bed. Uh, there's less chance of anybody in church uh, going to sleep this morning. The preacher should be awake as well. Uh, there's benefits for, for both sides uh, today. Uh, but thank you for, for, for allowing me to come along uh, at this time. And... Uh, <coughs> We want to read together from Genesis and weekend. We want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible and consider two of the promises from God that there will be a harvest. And we want to celebrate our harvest in Crumlin this weekend in the context of God's promise at the very start of the world in Genesis 3 and then tomorrow night with Noah after the flood that there will be food for us. On this earth. Genesis 3, then we read from verse 1 uh, to verse number 19. Let us hear the word of God. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam... He said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. As we said to the children, our main text is in verse 19. You shall eat bread. What a promise. What a promise. In 1888, Vincent van Gogh, the famous painter, he fulfilled a lifetime's ambition of, of painting a, a scene which he longed and wanted to do. He never felt ready. He never felt in the right mood. He felt that he had the right ideas throughout his life uh, to accomplish this painting. But in 1888, he documents in his diary, he writes to other people that he achieved a lifetime's desire. And it was the painting entitled The Harvest. And, and what would you expect Van Gogh's painting of the harvest to be like? Well, I'll describe it for you. You can Google it later on. I'll describe it for you. One quarter of the painting, the top quarter across, is of the sky. A turquoise sky. Gripping, beautiful, dazzling. The next quarter, right across the painting, is of a mountain range away in the distance. The next quarter in the painting, right across the painting, is of a landscape with horses and carts, with barns and mills, right across the landscape. And then it's the bottom quarter that's about the fields and some reapers in the fields and the harvest. And Van Gogh's point is that to understand the harvest, there is a bigger picture to see. It must be set in its context of the sky, of the mountain range, of the landscape and mills. And then we appreciate and understand the reaping of the fields. And in this sermon, in this part of God's word, I think this is what is happening here. We have the promise, you shall eat bread. What a promise. But it's set in a, a bigger picture that we want to try and grasp this morning uh, as we come in celebration of God's goodness to us in the harvest. We want to think firstly of the partners of harvest. We want to think secondly of the promise of harvest. And we want to think thirdly of the practicality of harvest in our lives at this time in 2019. Let's think first of all together from this passage of the partners of harvest. We talk to the children about the, the three-legged stool. Sometimes we play the, the word association game and someone says a word and you're to say the words that come into your head immediately. So when I say the word harvest, what comes into your mind? Perhaps you think about bread. Perhaps you think about combines. Perhaps you think about fields or hard work or picnics in the farm. And perhaps this passage is a corrective to our thinking because the two words that this passage associates with the harvest are Jesus 
and children. And this compiles our three-legged stool in relation to the, the preservation of humanity. How will mankind survive by these three elements? Harvest and children and Jesus. Let's think of the, the two partners of harvest, Jesus and children, uh, first of all. We have the mention of Jesus. Surely we have the mention of Jesus in verses number 14 and 15, don't we? The one described in verse number 15 in this penultimate line. He shall bruise your head. What a very specific promise. Here is a single individual. Here is a male individual. Here is one who is truly human. This has got to be Jesus, hasn't it? God is addressing Satan at this time. We'll think of the other enemies of survival. Starvation, for example. Extinction, for example. But the supreme enemy addressed here of humanity is Satan. He wanted to destroy humanity in the Garden of Eden. But God gives us a promise that humanity won't be destroyed by Satan, by his plans, efforts and schemes because of Jesus. To ensure the preservation of humanity, we need Jesus. But like each of these three elements of preservation, the survival only comes through suffering. And here in these verses, God, at the very beginning of our world in the Garden of Eden, he predicts the suffering of Jesus. In verse 15, the last line, you shall bruise his heel. And this figurative language is predicting the attacks that Satan will launch against Jesus in his ministry. The psychological attack in the wilderness when he tempted Jesus. The emotional pain that he caused Jesus by turning Judas against him. The physical pain that he brought to Jesus when he moved the nations to condemn him to crucifixion at the cross. He shall bruise his heel. But the promised one will triumph. Jesus will overcome. He, the verse says 15, shall bruise your head. It's the image of the triumphant general on the battlefield bringing his big foot down on the neck of his subdued enemy. He shall crush, he shall pummel, he shall destroy and kill your head. Jesus, the male, the solitary being, the one who's truly human, he shall triumph. Andy was no doubt pleased yesterday. Uh, and though, though we're not altogether fond of the English, there was probably a, a, a measure of pleasure in most of our lives and hearts as, as we watched this, this great victory uh, yesterday. 
I, I bought the newspaper after the match. I, and it was interesting reading. The, the, the expert sports journalist had put down the two teams side by side, number 10 against number 10, number 7 against number 7, and rated their performance throughout the World Cup tournament. And the All Blacks came out far ahead of the English. They reported uh, a configuration of, of 180,000 different uh, methods and statistics which this computer had compiled about the two teams to predict the score. And the score came out from this big computer, 24-17 to New Zealand. They didn't give England much of a chance, but they triumphed. And here is Jesus, the solitary figure, the male, truly human. What chance would he have against the, the mighty cunning and power of the kingdoms of darkness? But he triumphed. He overcame. And Christian people need to recognize that. And to believe that, that Satan is a defeated foe. That the survival of humanity is down to Jesus. He has held back the fulfillment of the schemes of Satan and the powers of darkness. Jesus has triumphed over Satan. He does have a measure of power still. His ultimate defeat will not be to the last day. The 39 found in the lorry trailer is Satan's attack on humanity. The abortion bill passed on Monday is Satan's attack on human life. He still has a measure of power. But he's a defeated foe. And the church are to believe this and recognize this. In Joshua chapter 10, as the people of Israel came in to conquer the land of Israel, they overcame their enemies and, and the generals in chapter 10 stood there with their feet on the necks of their enemies and they say, the Lord will do this to all our enemies. They grasp this promise. Jesus guarantees the survival of his people. Against all the powers of darkness that seeks to destroy humanity. But if you're not a Christian today, you need to recognize that you are in the kingdom of darkness. That you are on Satan's side. And, and when you become a Christian, and we would long that you became a Christian, Jesus takes you out of the kingdom of darkness. And he puts you into the kingdom of God. The first partner of harvest is Jesus. The most important. And then the second partner of harvest is children. And this is related to us in verse 16. We could have food, couldn't we? We could have Jesus, couldn't we? But if we didn't have children, then humanity would become extinct. They're a crucial part 
of the survival and preservation of humanity. Not just Jesus, not just food, but children. And once again, the survival of the human race is, is through pain. This contribution, this element of survival is only achieved through suffering in verse 16. And this suffering for the woman arises from the two parties most important in her life. Children and husband. From those two parties, pain arises in relation to children. It's in connection with childbirth, the text says. And there's a, there's a whole range of pain associated with children being born. Some women don't have children and that's extremely painful for them. Some women do have children and, and, and that experience is extremely painful for them. There's a whole range. Yes, they're crucial in the survival of humanity. But it comes once again, as with Jesus, through pain. The other cause of pain is, is her husband the text says because of the fall this closest human relation within the world of husband and wife it will be fractured there will be tensions there will be disagreements the woman will want to dominate the husband and the husband will overreact aggressively and dominate the wife and so there is divorce and there is Domestic abuse. Yes, the survival of humanity is promised, but the pain is there. And what a promise it is in verse 16 you shall bring forth children. The survival of humanity is, is guaranteed by God's word, by God's commitment to a subsequent generation. Being born and living and serving. I think it's really interesting the reflection on this by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy in chapter 2. He will go on in chapter 3 of that book to describe the qualifications for elders and for deacons within the church. And in Paul's mind and understanding, the elders are to be men and the deacons are to be men. But before he begins the qualifications of elders and deacons, he says of women that they will be saved in childbearing. And it's more than that. Mary would be the mother of Jesus, the Savior, who would save all his people. It is that their importance, their place within society, their contribution and value within the church will be guarded and preserved and held on to. There will be pain. But the survival of humanity is promised. Some interesting books have been written about the D-Day landings. And one especially from, by a journalist from a soldier's perspective and recollections. And the point that this journalist makes in this fascinating book on the D-Day landings is that there was a price to be paid by the victors. They had many casualties. 
He describes in great detail the sinking of the USS Corrie. That that large aircraft carrier which couldn't get turned in time before the German guns were, were leveled on it and it sank with all its crew. What a price to pay for victory. And here the survival of humanity is being set out for us. And there is a price. There's a price for Jesus. There's a price for women. We come thirdly, secondly then, to the promise of harvest. The partners of harvest are Jesus and children. Secondly, the promise of harvest. In verses 17 to 19. Alongside of Christ and his work in overcoming Satan and the attacks which he has to destroy humanity, it is is woman and the bearing of children and, and we rejoice in the children of our church today. But we could have children and we could have Jesus. But with both of those, Humanity wouldn't survive. There is a third element that is crucial. A third element that is needed. And that is the harvest. And the harvest is set out in verses 17 to 19 of this great promise. And again, the survival of humanity is linked with the pain that is experienced in that survival. It is a two-fold pain. There is physical pain in in reaping a harvest. And there is psychological pain mentioned here in tilling the ground. There is a a physical pain and I'm sure all of you are are far too young to remember the hard labour when scythes were used and and a lot of manual work was engaged in and the sweat was there on the brow to bring in the harvest. It was a grueling and exhausting time. Limbs were hurting. Sweat was flowing. Muscles were aching. What a, what a time of hard labor it was to provide scones and bread and pancakes for the family. But even in our time, it's hard work. A member of my congregation went to England to work on an 8,000 acre farm. He was finishing work at 12 o'clock at night and beginning work at 4 o'clock in the morning. He lasted two months and came home exhausted. Bringing in the harvest now is still associated with pain and effort. But but alongside of that physical pain, there is the psychological pain in our verse. See the connection in verses 17 and 19. You shall eat bread from the ground. In verse 17. And then in verse 19, you will return to the ground. And farmers and, and, and ourselves, as we, as we, as we view the, the fields being harvested and the, the crops being reaped, we, we experience this psychological pain. We dominate the ground for a time. We sow the ground. We, we reap the ground. We plow the ground. But it's only for a time because the time will come when that ground will conquer us. 
We eat from the ground now, but the time will come when we will be buried in the ground. To the ground we will return. But the promise alongside of the pain is here. You shall eat bread. We have the harvest of 2019. We have loaves in our cupboards. We have food on our table because of this promise at the very beginning of the Bible. God says, you shall eat bread. Alongside of Jesus, alongside of the promise of children, there is this promise of harvest. You shall eat bread. Now you say, come on now preacher, come on. Don't, don't be deaf to the facts now as some of you are. A billion people went to bed last night hungry. How is this promise being fulfilled? You shall eat bread. And Andrew prayed for them today. The farming community, they produce enough food every year to feed 10 billion people. There's seven and a half billion in the world. The farming community produces far more food than is needed. Enough for 10 billion when there's only seven and a half billion in the world. Why a billion go to bed hungry each night is not because the food is not there. It's because of our mismanagement of the storage and distribution of the food. To those who have need. The blame doesn't lie on God's doorstep for hunger. But but on ours. As we sit at our dinner table today. As we open our lunchbox tomorrow in the presence of our work colleagues. Or school friends in the canteen. As we see the bread of our sandwich, surely we've got to bow our heads in prayer. We've got to travel back to the very beginning of the world and to hear God say in this post-fall first day, you shall eat bread. The partners of harvest the promise of harvest and then thirdly the practicality of harvest the promise of harvest here helps us practically doesn't it and in particular it helps us to understand three things helps us understand the grace of God doesn't it What a context this is. In chapter 2, God said to Adam and Eve with great clarity and great power, and, and Andrew can help you get to the depths of the statement, in the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall die. You shall die. But when they ate of the forbidden fruit, what's he saying? You shall live. You shall live. Live by Jesus. 
Live by birth. Live by harvest. What grace. The 39 in the lorry. They didn't deserve to die. But Adam and Eve did. And we do. And here's an insight. Here's a window. Here's a tangible expression of the grace of God as we see harvest today. We deserve to die. But he says, you will live. The Bible comments on this in Romans chapter 5. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. It was bigger. In chapter 6 it says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is life. And some people, some Christian people, they don't think God can forgive them. They've sinned too badly, too long, too deeply, with too much knowledge for God to forgive them. You need to come to this chapter again. It helps us understand God's grace. The moderator of our church, Mark, he was, he was at a conference uh, down in the south of Ireland a few years ago. There was 500 people at this conference. And a man who had lingered too long at the bar, he walks into this conference and is amazed to, to see all of these people. Not a common thing on a Friday night when he was down at the bar. And he begins to talk to our moderator about, about what this is, is about. And he asks the moderator, could God save me? Mark says, yes, yes, yes he could. And the man says, but, but, but you don't know me. And the moderator says, but I know God. This, this is God. And perhaps some of us are, are, are in the other camp and we struggle to forgive. We're holding on to grudges against people who have done wrong to us years and years ago and we, we can never let it go. And you need to come to this passage to learn about grace then to go and live it. It helps us to understand about the grace of God and we need to carry this home with us today. Secondly, it helps us understand about the sufferings of life. There's a lot of misunderstanding about suffering in this world. The origin of suffering, the cause of suffering. Some cults advocate that there is no human suffering at all. But we know better, don't we? Take grief, for example. Arguably the most powerful emotion that we can feel. The feeling of grief that changes a woman, that changes a man so dramatically, so powerfully. Think of a man in my church. And he thought he could never live another day when he experienced bereavement. I think of a 17-year-old lad in my church, captain of the local rugby team who were put out at the latter stages of the school's cup and he went to bed for a day. We've all experienced grief. 
And we've had wrong thoughts about the cause of grief and, and the origin of grief. And here we are in this chapter and, and we can learn that there was no grief before the fall. But sin and suffering are linked. But alongside of the suffering, there is the promise of grace. And lastly, I think this helps us in relation to our priorities in our life. When I worked in the bank, the new bank manager gathered the staff together and conveyed his priorities. First was the customer, of course. Customer is always right. Second was the staff. And thirdly was the bank. And the staff thought this was great that he was actually putting the staff before the bank. And we all have priorities. But sometimes those priorities get into the wrong order. And here we have set out by God the three elements of Jesus and children and harvest. And what priority, what order are they in in our life? I read about Jennifer Anastine this past week and the diet she was on. It's called the 16-8 the diet. Maybe, maybe you've tried it. I'm certainly not on that and don't think tomorrow night, you know, avoid giving me the cakes and all. You know, I'm, I'm not on that diet. The 16-8 diet, you don't eat between what's it, 6 o'clock at night and 10 o'clock the next morning, the 16 hours and then the 8 hours you do some eating. And she goes on about this and it seems that, that the food is number one in her life. Then family number two. Then Jesus. Not that important. But what about us? Isn't God setting this out in the right order for us here? He comes to to Adam and Eve. And he talks to them first of all about Jesus. He addresses their spiritual need They need Jesus and he tells them there is a saviour. Then he talks to them about family. And then he talks to them about food. What order are they in in our life? Is Jesus first? Is family second? May God bless us in this time of harvest as we praise him and reflect on his grace.